Welcome to Faith and Fable, pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a b- biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And today we are, this is coming a little late, but we decided to do an episode, actually several episodes on... I was on, like, I think this is, couldn't be more than one. Yeah. Uh, key figures of revival. And we weren't originally going to do this, but after getting into it, um, we found it's important and because history is important and there are many things that took place over the past few centuries that have unknowingly shaped the church today uh some good of course many bad and so as we work through some of these key figures uh we hope it'll be enjoyable for you but also help you see the effects of the past and so you'll have to remember back but we made that critical distinction between what we were calling revival and then revivalism and we tried to show that sometimes we think or do certain things, but never take the time to ask why. Uh, we would say, in in many cases, the answer is history yeah, and or we, tradition. And that's because, yeah, tradition. I mean, I remember doing camping meetings when I was part of the Nazarene Church. And I never asked why. That's just what they did. But it was actually built with a theology of revivalism. But never knew that. And in sense, they, my grand, their parents and grandparents did it. It must be just how you do it. Right, right. Yeah. So, so we'd say it's important to understand that there are always presuppositions at play, uh, tradition, and theology drives much of what the church thinks and does. But it's important to understand that that didn't just appear out of nowhere. Um, these things began somewhere, and so we would say when it comes to revival or how we think about it, we see this, you know, with these important figures of history. It's a, it, it is amazing to see the unknown influence some of these people still have in churches today. Yeah. Uh, entire ministries are built off of the theology and practice of some of these, and, and again, they don't even necessarily know it. So we're not going to do an ultra deep dive, but we do hope to give give enough to help you understand what has shaped revivals and therefore what has shaped many of the practices that you do still see in in our day, both good and bad. All right. So the first one that we're going to hit is the first Great Awakening, which took place in America in the 1730s and 40s. Now, leading up to that first Great Awakening, there were several pockets of uh, revival that broke out, and, and we really have only brief recordings of these. Back in 1679 to 1718, there was a congregation in Northampton uh, in western Massachusetts—I can't say that, Massachusetts? Yeah. Um, documented five different revivals under the pastorate of a man named Solomon Stoddard, which uh, you may not know, but interestingly, he was the grandfather of Jonathan Edwards. Um, a much larger revival is recorded having taken place between 1720 to 1722. During that time, hundreds of new Christians joined churches during the time, which would have been very significant for uh, what we would call colonial America. And then in 1727, there was a massive earthquake, and it took place at Rock, Northampton, and the rest of New England. You never think of earthquakes going on back there. No. Um, 
it created a lot of fear and anxiety in the people. And so during that time, leading preachers began urging their congregants to repent. And they used the earthquake as an illustration for how God could shake the earth once more with the special movement of the Holy Spirit. As a result, there was this new emphasis that began to be spoken of by many Puritan pastors, namely uh, the seasons of revival. And it launched a movement composed of a diverse group of Protestants, uh, Continental Pietism, Scots-Irish Presbyterianism, and Anglo-American Puritanism. They all began to actually cooperate together and swap ideas on how to promote and sustain um, revivals. And, and I got a question about that. Would you call that movement revival or revivalism? All those pastors coming together? Yeah, um, and, and how to— keep this going and yeah. promote it. So that that is what we would have defined as revivalism. Um, that, that is not to deny, obviously, as we're going to talk about that, true revival took place. Yeah. But once they started to see certain things happening, like many, and we're so prone to do is, all right, let's go to the technique. What did we do that created this? Yeah. And now let's exchange those ideas and try and get this moving. And so you see ecumenical movements already happening yep. early on. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I, I I always think of John MacArthur. He had his he told the seminarians many times that he could never reproduce what he did because he didn't do it. He's like, I just showed up and preached and people just started coming. Um and I, I've always appreciated his distinction between that and the ones who talk about the technique, like you just said. Um you can appreciate you want you see a good move movement of God, you see people coming to Christ, and you want, let's keep that. But what do we got to do to keep it going? And and without even realizing, you slip into yeah. a technique-driven revivalism rather than just rejoicing that for a season, God has granted it. We don't have any basis for it other than God chose to work. Yeah. Well, and we were talking off mic a little bit about this, and I think that's what took place with uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Yeah. I mean, he was you know, caught up in the the old Welsh revival, and he spent the majority of his ministry after that chasing that right. that I don't know. This is probably not a, an appropriate word, but chasing that high, if you will. If you read some of his writings, he talks about how there were only few occasions that he remembers in his life in which he felt, especially the the anointing of the Spirit or something in his preaching. Yeah. And he says he it only happened a few times, and he was always longing for that and. But in light of the theology that we tried to build in the past episodes, um, I think it's incorrect. I do too. In fact, it would it ties into a, a, the things we've taught about spirit baptism versus spirit filling, and how that spirit filling is not a long term thing. It it usually comes at a unique moment, a, a divine empowerment by the spirit to accomplish something. And I think pastors can experience that. Um, and I think that's what he probably was referring to, is that there was just those moments in time when his preaching was uniquely powerful, and he had he couldn't put his finger on it. But, I mean, I've had that uh, a, a few times, and I, and I can walk away, and it is. It, it's like a drug almost. You're like, man, I, I'd like to see that all the time. What's interesting with Lloyd-Jones, though, is that he accomplished so much in spite of that, and it's like, if we could learn to be content, yeah. uh, instead of always looking to do the big thing for God and just be faithful and let God do His work, whether it be a few people here and there over a period of time or 
a sustained major movement doesn't matter. It's it's that faithfulness that we're called, but we always flip it and we start chasing that dream. Yeah. Do you think that some of that would then help ease that quote burnout in ministry? Yeah. Or just that discouragement that can often happen because boy, it seems like I've been doing this a long time and nothing's happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that gets into even like missiology with like William Carey, how long he preached yeah. before he saw a single convert. And and it's like, is my job to preach the gospel and, and bring the word or is it to make converts? And and the moment you make that subtle shift in your mind, you're all over the map. And nowadays in America, it's not that hard. Well, it is during COVID, but it's not that hard to, there's a technique that you can do to start a church and immediately, I mean, we have a couple in our, our city, right, that they start out and their very first Sunday, 175 people show, and then they they actually manufactured a controversy over sex that got their name in the paper, and so they got kicked out of the school, and so they opened it up in the movie theater, and immediately that Sunday they had over 300, and it was all technique. Sure. And and you can say, whoa, that, God's moving. It's like, no, you're just marketing well. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's a movement of God. Doesn't mean a person is converted or walking now in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But um, I think that also leads to some of the burnout because the expectations are like our nation. The demands is why people look at the pastor and they presume he's failing because his church is shrinking. Right. When in fact, the best thing that might be happening right now is that the church might shrink because. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's it's similar to the, you know, all the studies they do on social media, how people are so addicted to it because when they open it up, they're hoping to see that there's notifications. Because oh, yeah, the, how many likes the, the they endorphin get? rush they get from likes or comments or something like that. Well, similar with pastors, when you see new people walk through your doors on Sundays, you know, you're like, oh, so the endorphin rush <laughs> come. But then when you're in that slog of just boy, there, there's just been nobody new coming. It's just, it's the same people. And you got to make that shift in your mind of, yeah, but this is my flock. This is who I'm to pastor and shepherd. Yeah. It's not those unknowns yet. But it's not easy, is it? No, it's it, not. It's a constant subtle yeah. temptation. And it hurts when then some guy comes sweeping into town and it's the talk of the town. He's He's got it all down and people are going there. And you start watching people break off from your church because they're saying, well, I, I just don't think you've got a pastor. And it's like, I don't know what that it is, <laughs> but, but you don't have it. I mean, we started out our high Sunday when I first came at 166, and I managed to shrink it at, to 48. And there were many Sundays I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to see who wasn't there in the pews anymore. Sure. You know, it's just like, oh, Father. And, and so you had to just do constant gut checks. Am I preaching faithfully? Am I speaking truth? Am I pointing them to Christ? Amen. You have to. You have to go back to that, um, because if not, the only other option is what technique do I need to change, and 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 and, and then it becomes an idol. But yeah, yeah, so I can appreciate them. It's a rough life. This is the 1700s. That's a tough time to live, and they're seeing God work. So what do we got to do to keep it going? But, yeah. But that's important to note. So Edwards then inherited his expectation of for revivals uh, from his grandfather. Uh, George Marsden writes this, Edwards was the first to publicize revivals and became their principal theorist. He was long revered as the greatest theologian of revival. And so due to Edwards' 
influence, revivalism became the nation's most influential theological tradition. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Jonathan Edwards, he he was that first great theologian of revivals. I mean, he, yeah, he, he religious affections. Absolutely. So, so just to give some on him, for, he lived from 1703 to 1758. Uh, he attended uh, Yale. Um, for his college. And these guys are getting their PhDs at like 16, you know? <laughs> um, so he's, he's going to Yale. He eventually takes over the pastorate of the congregational church there in Northampton from his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. So nepotism. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Interesting though. A lot of people don't know. He, he, for all that we know of Edwards and how great he is and, you know, uh, all, all of his writings, in his prominent place within the church, he actually lost his pastor yep. due to a controversy concerning the Lord's Supper. And he began to argue that you should not practice that open communion. Yeah, um, you had to show clear evidence of conversion. Yep. And, uh, yeah, which was messing because you had a lot of people baptized into the church. And Yep. So he, he ends up getting removed from that pastorate. And then so in 1758, which is the year that he died, uh, right before he died, he became the president of the College of New Jersey, which was actually later renamed Princeton, uh, Princeton University. So Princeton was, and this is interesting, originally founded in 1746 for the purpose of training ministers who supported the Great Awakening. Now so, they're promoting wokeism. <laughs> Isn't and, that crazy? All these Ivy Leagues, that's why they started. Yep. And now it's... Not. It's sad. <laughs> yeah. So in, in 1730... Um, what ended up happening is was, there was scarcity in the land um, and scarcity in livelihood, and that led to social upheaval in Northampton. On average, men were starting to wait until they were 29 to marry. Uh, women were now waiting until they were 25, and, and an alarming number of children were starting to be born out of wedlock. That's very fascinating because, yeah, <laughs> it's like you're waiting because you, you don't have the land. You're not a landed gentleman, so you can't. Right have your household and pro provide, but you're still wanting sex. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Huh. Where, where have we seen that before? <laughs> yeah. So, so then in 1734, um, there was a widely admired young, younger man there in Northampton who unexpectedly dies. And that then rings a sense of great fear in the younger people of that day. And so what Edwards does is he now preaches a sermon from Psalm 90 verses five through six, which is, uh, that famous couple of verses, which states, you have swept them away like a flood. <laughs> they fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes, sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. So he's he's now preaching on the brevity of life and um, in light of this death. And, he's not really expositing that psalm, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but he's a Puritan. <laughs> right. Um, so that sermon combined uh, with that, with such a shocking and untimely death of that young person, left a major impression. And Edwards then reported that the young people became far more serious-minded about the brevity of life. They began to start studying the Bible. They began to start praying together in small groups. All right. So this then began a micro-revival, if we can call it that, in Northampton. And in August of 1734, Edwards spurred this on even more when he preached one of his most famous sermons. This is the title. Now, check a, this out. Yeah. A divine and supernatural light 
immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God, shown to be both a scriptural and rational doctrine. Now, I'm going to argue we need more titles like this. Absolutely. In fact, I would even argue that the, the advent of cassettes destroyed glorious titles because you had to fit it on the cassette label, and now we have, you know, God loves you or something <laughs> bad. Um, not, not that God loving you is bad, people. I don't need an email on that. Um, so he argued there that there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. Uh, a man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but man can't, can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind, which is, he's kind of discussing experience, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so there's, in Greek, you got the word to know, gnosis, and then epigenosis, which is an intensified form. And a lot of times you'll hear that as, a, in fact, I've spoken of it, uh, as an experiential knowledge rather than just knowledge. Would you say that's sort of what he's getting at, or what would you say to that? Y uh, yes, yes, I would say yes and no. All right. So I guess. it's a shaded answer. Yeah. Um, and it depends what you mean by experiential knowledge. So, so Paul uses that term often. Um, Which term? Epigenos. Okay. Uh, so if, he'll use it in the Colossians prayer passage, for example. Yeah, we just had a guy preach this in our church. Yeah, he says, uh, he, he's praying that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And he uses the term epigenos. So the question is, what is he talking about? What is that knowledge of his will? And some people argue it's purely experiential, though that's never quite defined. Um, I would argue that it's in reference to, I guess, a special knowledge um, that you otherwise couldn't have unless it's especially revealed to you. I.e. special revelation. Exactly. So the, the word of God, in other words. Right. Paul then goes on to finish Colossians. So he's writing scripture. So he's imparting now that special knowledge. That real knowledge or yeah, that epigenosis. Yeah. Now, there is a sense in which is it, it's experienced. So as we were talking, um, you can understand intellectually the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering and trial, for example. Uh, and you can build a theology, which is very important to have before the suffering and the trial come. In fact, it's important that you have that built, yeah, if at all possible, before the suffering, because it can inform you. 100%. But there is a sense in which you do not understand that until you walk through the trial, right? And then the special grace and the understanding of how you relate to God's sovereignty is what now sustains you and it becomes precious to you. It's sweeter to you and, and you understand those things. So I do think there's an, an experiential component to it. But it's not additional knowledge. No, it's built off of. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a richer form of that knowledge. That's not even a good, would you agree? That's not a good example. Um, but I mean, it's kind of like what we say about wisdom. It's you take Bible and you can skillfully now apply it. Well, in this sense, it, it's taking the knowledge, the word, and then it's more fully grasped. Yeah. But it's it, it didn't appear out of nowhere. It was always there. You just didn't, right? I mean, yeah. when when I when I get to be an adult, I'm never going to do this to my kids. Right. <laughs> Every kid said that at some point, and then they have kids, and they start to understand. Oh, yes, I am going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I can tell my daughter, Naomi, I love her. But there's also a sense in which she'll experience that love tangibly, right? Right. Um, so Edwards here is saying, 
you can scientifically understand what honey is and, you know, the sugars and the chemical breakdown and what it looks like and make the observation. Or you could dip your finger in it and stick it on your tongue and go, honey, huh? Yes. <laughs> that, I think that, I think that, but that doesn't deny the scientific properties of what honey is. Right. And I guess all we're trying to say, and correct me if I'm off on this, but is that it's tempting for people to hyper emphasize their experience and somehow treat the experience in itself as actual knowledge. And it's like, but you can experience something and your understanding of it is false, mm -hmm. right? So, Absolutely. I mean, I've been baptized with the spirit. Why? Because I experienced this ecstatic moment where I babbled. And therefore, I, I, I know you can't tell me that speaking in tongues is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, yes, we can, because that's not what the Bible teaches it is. And it doesn't matter what your experience, it's not in line with revealed truth. Revealed truth has to be first, and then it, it and then your experience experiences that truth. I, yeah, I don't know well, how you to test, say it. You test the experience by that knowledge, right? So that you can now determine whether your experience was in line with the truth or if it was not. Right. Um, right. But this was an important analogy that he created. Why? Oh, well, it was critical for the time in which rational preaching started to displace that emotional exhortations of the Puritan preaching, where rational lectures that prized reason over affections, people don't realize they would go for three, four hours. <laughs> they actually had the deacons had sticks. Did you know that? No. Yeah, the, one of the jobs of the deacons, because they're on these nasty, nasty straight back benches, uh, and the members are, and this guy's droning on for three, four hours on this tightly rational message, and the deacons walked around with sticks and they poke you anytime you fell asleep. <laughs> we should start that ministry again. <laughs> uh, I, it, it would be great. Um, okay, so, but anyhow, they, they used to have these rational lectures then that were prized reason over affections or emotions, but m deeper than just an emotion, or the mind of the, over the heart. And they were seen to be of greater virtue. And here you see the pre-modernism already starting to give way to what would eventually become modernism. Yeah, r rationalism is right. more important or higher than feelings. Right. But the sermon of Edwards was so powerful because he was seeking to show the difference between merely having a knowledge about God, which is rationalism, and experiencing his love and the truth of his word. Would you say that's kind of like what we talked about with the three aspects of saving faith? We have the facts, we agree to the facts, and then we trust or love those facts? Yeah. yeah. A lot of people stop at, I, I know the gospel. I accept the gospel, but I have actually no love of the gospel, and we would argue that's not actually saving faith. Mm -hmm. It's when you finally say, I trust that. That's my hope. Yeah. Um, and that's what he's trying to do. Yeah. And so it's a great lesson on what C.S. Lewis would refer to as chronological snobbery. Just because something is old doesn't mean it's wrong, and just because something is new doesn't mean it's better or right. Um, Edwards showed great wisdom in seeking to marry the two. He said, you don't have to replace the old. Rather, use the old to inform the new and help shape a better way forward. This is such an important lesson, even in, in our day, with many of the issues constantly being discussed within the church. And so this revival continued through December, uh, 
when one of the town's most promiscuous young women was converted, her radical conversion and transformation influenced her social circle, and that resulted in the gospel affecting those who were considered to be the most morally corrupt. That's kind of cool. Uh, this, in turn, then spurred the Northampton revival all the more. Yeah. So, so Edwards, his joy and his exuberance to all of this and compelled him to pen uh, his, his famous work entitled A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God, uh, in which he details the account of this time. And he explained several ways in which the entire community had changed. So many all of a sudden seemed to become more focused on eternity. Uh, conversions were something that were now regularly taking place. The entire moral fabric of the town was changing. It's kind of like what you saw in Ephesus. In yeah. the book of Acts, right? Yeah. Um, All of a sudden, idols are getting burned, and <laughs> yeah, guys are going out of business because <laughs> no one wants their idols. Exactly. And so, so, so people had a strange new hunger for the Word of God, as he records. All of that resulted in revival now spreading to thirty-two other towns as an overflow of what was taking place there in Northampton. And his his narrative, uh, in fact, made its way all the way to what what was called the Old World. Um, basically resulting in an immense thirst and longing for revival now to break out even in Britain. Um, not the least of whom, by the way, was John Wesley, yeah. who, who read that narrative and heard of the effects of the Northampton revival shortly after his own conversion. And of course, he becomes the great revivalist mm-hmm. there. Tragically, though, uh, and, this and, is crazy, and interestingly, this story. yeah, only two days, check this out, after Edwards finishes penning that narrative, uh, the Northampton revival comes to an immediate end. And the reason for that is because Edward's own uncle, can you imagine how discouraging this would be? His yeah. own uncle, a man by the name of Joseph Hawley, slits his throat in suicide. Um, and he was a revered town leader in Northampton. And basically, apparently he had fallen into just deep depression over the panic of spending eternity in hell. And so his his rational thinking was, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll kill myself. <laughs> I thought we're laughing, but it's like, that's how crazy it is. Yeah. It's like, you're terrified of judgment to come. Instead of finding solace in Christ, you 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 literally take a knife to your throat and that's... Yeah, very bizarre. And, and then shortly after that took place, several other esteemed church members uh, report hearing, and they were leaders actually, uh, report hearing voices telling them to slit their throats as well. So Edwards, he interprets those events as Satan having taken notice and basically now attempting to quell that joyous outburst. Well, it seemed to work too. Um, so all of these events led Edwards to become all the more serious about preaching on the schemes of Satan and of hell. And if this is what Satan could do now, then he thought it important to describe what hell would be like. I th- just, sorry, just quickly, you know how Paul says uh, in Corinthians, he says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. Right. It's like, well, apparently we are. <laughs> yeah. So, so he, he interprets it as that, and he's like, now, okay, now I'm going to preach on that. So, so I want you to get a real firm grasp of what hell would be like, because there's no there's no protection in slitting your throat, right? right? So he that leads him to penning and preaching that most famous sermon, the sinners in the hands of the angry God of uh, angry God. Uh, he preached this on other occasions, but during a visit to Enfield, Connecticut, in 1741, uh, which he preached this sermon, the results were unforgettable and lasting. Uh, in fact, due to the screaming and other emotional displays from the congregation, people were literally falling out of their 
pews, yeah. uh, weeping and crying out. Uh, he actually had to stop the sermon multiple times and tell people to shush. Um, but I even find that very fascinating because today we would just say, wow, what a great movement of God, and we'll just stop preaching the word. And he still understood, no, you need to hear the word preached. I'm glad you're weeping, but could you be quiet for a bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I got a sermon to finish. <laughs> um, so Edwards could not even ultimately finish the sermon. The people of Enfield became utterly terrified by Satan's schemes and his vivid descriptions of hell in the sermon. Here's just a small excerpt. He says, or, or wrote, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as a worthy, worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is a purer eyes than to bear to have to look or to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent in ours. And that right there intensified the first great awakening as we've come to know it. And so Edward said this. He said, if I am in danger of going to hell, I should be glad to know as much as possibly I can of the dreadfulness of it. If I am very prone to neglect, do care to avoid it. Um, he doesn't. He does me the best kindness. Who does most to represent to me the truth of the case that sets forth my misery and the danger in my life in the liveliest manner. Yeah, and and that helps shape what we've argued for in previous episodes. Um, so yeah, there, there were those times in which the ecumenical stuff was happening. Hey, let's get together and talk about techniques and stuff. But when, and when we think of revival, we do, we'll think of those meetings. We'll think of music. Uh, Sean Foyt, he's still traveling around doing his worship concerts, um, you know, with his band and setting up rival, revival events and whatnot. But the first great awakening was shaped by very serious and potentially boring preacher. I mean, Jonathan Edwards wrote his scripts and he's reported as having basically his head down the whole time, just reading it in a very monotone manner. Um, yet what was he doing? He's preaching the truth of God's word. Uh, he's preaching on sin. He's preaching on holiness, the judgment to come, and he is calling people to true repentance. And so revival breaks out. Um, so that's Jonathan Edwards. Um, this is our first bit into just the first great awakening. We're going to continue on with that. Uh, there's much more we could say about Edwards personally, but this is enough to understand the major events of his life and ministry in terms of the first great awakening. There are other figures, uh, influential people. Uh, and next time, Lord willing, we'll talk about those. But until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the first great awakening and Jonathan Edwards. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend.